We'll praise the Lord, everyone. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Go ahead and leave them there. Um, we're going to be returning to this chapter in a moment. You may have walked in today and you noticed, well, things look a little dimmer. Um, it's, it's not me. Uh, we changed out all the lights. The cool thing is, because we're not done yet, the cool thing, though, everything in here, down the hall, in the offices, the city of Idaho Falls paid for. There's a municipal program. It only cost us labor. So uh, all we had to see was what, what it looked like when it was done, and then we're just going to add four more lights to bring it up to the proper light, and that's the only four we have to pay for. So that's pretty awesome. Um, amen. Amen. Give the Lord praise. It's good that, it, that God is already kind of getting a jump because we weren't even going to announce that until the vision meeting. Um, but God has already gotten a jump on what he's going to do. Um, interestingly, whenever I bring in a licensed electrician uh, to do some work, I notice something. They always turn off the power before they start work. Now, you laugh, but I've also noticed something else. Whenever I bring in somebody as a, a handyman or somebody in the church who means well, they don't turn the power off. Now, if you, ask, if you ask an electrician why, they're going to tell you, uh, at some point, they probably didn't turn it off, and they got burnt by it, and they learned a lesson. And what's true in one aspect of life is generally true in others. Uh, the, the guy whose company we use, he's a children's pastor at an area church, and we were just talking about sound and, and, and just uh, the acoustics of the room, and he, said, he, he told me a story about having a sound background himself, that he was talking to a sound engineer in his church, or the, basically the sound guy, and he told him, here's something you can do to make the sound better, and the guy just looked at him and said, nah, I'm good. Now, let me, let me just share with you something. You never earn the right to do things the wrong way. You never earn the right to do things the wrong way. We do things the wrong way or we get offended when somebody tells us we're doing things the wrong way because we, we mark out our territory like we talked about with Peter. Jesus, you're the carpenter. I'm the fisherman. Let me take care of the fish. You build the boat. I'll catch the fish off it. The Holy Spirit doesn't play that game. The Holy Spirit will tell us where we're wrong. And so I want to begin by sharing a basic biblical principle that we see throughout Scripture. God brings His people to a place where they will either reverence Him or where they fear Him in a wrong way, and it results in either a time of moving forward in worship or deciding that the price is too high to continue following the Lord. So look with me at 2 Samuel 6, beginning in verse 12. The king was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of the, from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Let me pray a blessing over this house. Father, in the name of Jesus, we know that your word brings blessing. We know that your spirit brings blessing. I pray a blessing over all who would hear the word of God and walk in it. I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that we would like a sponge absorb every drop of teaching and counsel and correction that the spirit gives us today, Lord. Let us be molded 
and shaped by you, Lord. We do not write you, you write us. And so I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that we would humble ourselves before you to receive your favor. In his name we pray. Amen and amen. David had a heart of God, a heart for God. He wanted to bring Israel out of the spiritual funk that they had been in. God even says David is a man after his own heart. But he begins with a wrong assumption. He begins with the assumption so many of us begin with that, hey, as long as my heart is in the right place, then how I do things isn't really that important. He wanted the blessings. But he didn't check to see if his pursuit of God lined up with the counsel of the Word of God. And this is true of most of us. We almost always try the easy way first to see if we can get away with it. And what happened was, and if you go back a little bit earlier in the chapter, the Bible says that David wanted to bring the ark of God into the city of David. And so he get, brings together at the beginning of 2 Samuel 6, 30,000 men. And he and these, all these men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. Now they set, the Bible says, the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab. Why did they do that? Because... When the Ark of God had been captured by the Philistines several years before, what happened was that there were plagues that came upon the Philistines because the Ark of God was in their presence. And they decided to send it back to Israel on an ox cart. They didn't know any better. God allowed them to do it. David, on the other hand, had the Word of God. He had the law and he knew how the Ark was supposed to be carried. It was supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites they would carry long poles that would be stuck through rings on the sides of the ark so that they never physically touched the ark of God. And everything seems to be going fine until verse 6. The Bible says when they, they, that they had been celebrating before the Lord with all their mights, and they come to the threshing floor of Nacon, and Yuzah, whose name means strength, reaches out and takes hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Bible says in verse 7, The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had bro broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah or outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom. The Gittite, the ark of the Lord, remained in the house of Obed-Edom for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. And that's where we picked up our initial text. David's plans, which had seemed so right just moments before, suddenly collapsed. And I want you to pay attention to the text, the, 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 the words the text uses. David wanted to bring up the ark, meaning he wanted God's favor. He wanted God's blessings for the, the temple that was to be built and for the people of God. But he brought it, or he tried to bring it up in his own strength. And Uzzah is stricken before the Lord. Meaning, David had the word. He had God's prescription for how God wanted his ark moved. There would have been no problem if the ark had been transported the way that Scripture told David to do it. But instead, David chose a method that he preferred. He chose a method that he preferred. He was guilty 
of failing to rightly fear the Lord, to honor Him, and he tried to bring God to a level that he was comfortable with. The Bible warns us repeatedly about this subject. David certainly saw this in his own life with what happened uh, to, to his predecessor, King Saul, when King Saul tries to do the work of the priest. Understand there were three offices that were given in Scripture, prophet, priest, and king. No one person was permitted to occupy all three of those offices. Now, there were individuals that occupied two. David was one of them. He was both prophet and king. But you could not occupy all three offices. Only one was ever to occupy all three. Jesus. Jesus came as the, the prophetic successor to Moses. He sits right now at the right hand of God. Hebrews tells us as our high priest. And he will return as... King, King of kings and Lord of lords. So to attempt to move out of your lane and to occupy a place that God has not offered to you, has not commissioned you for, was arrogant. And that's why Scripture says it was irreverent. It was irreverent. Not that in that moment it was irreverent, because I'm sure Uzzah had his heart in the right place. But the activity that he was engaged in was irreverent because it did not line up with the prescription that God had given. See, if we're asking God to reveal himself, what you're really doing is asking for the same thing David and Ananias and Sapphira and Gehazi and Saul, Uzziah, all in all, they all did this and they all failed to reverence him. That the tangible, immediate presence of God, it's like nitroglycerin. It's powerful, but you handle it with care. And they didn't do that. It must be handled back then and it must be handled now according to his prescription, not according to man's preference. That which brings salvation, that which brings miracles, that which brings blessings and healings is also that which cannot tolerate self-promotion. It couldn't tolerate the lying of Ananias and Sapphira. It would not permit itself to be handled in the strength of man. When Uzziah tried to operate as, as a priest, what happened? He became leprous. When Miriam tried to walk in the office given only to her brother Moses, she became leprous. When Saul tried to offer the sacrifice in the place of the priest, he was removed from his kingly office. God repeatedly shows us in His Word that His presence is powerful and it must be handled with care. Now here's the thing. You might be saying, well then, no way. I don't want anything to do with it. The problem is, that's our call. That's our call. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen generation, a royal what? Priesthood. We are to carry with us the presence of God to impact the world around us. When we look at what's happening in our culture, when we look at, the, the, at, at all these threats of war, the economy, Tyree Nichols and George Floyd, we look at all these situations and we wonder why are they happening? I don't point the finger at the world. Now what the world wants to do is lay collective guilt on people without the fear of the Lord and I reject that absolutely. If you're telling me to adopt your system of righteousness that does not include a reverent fear of the Lord, I want nothing to do with it. But the problem is that the church is not walking as the church has been called to walk. We were not raised up. We were not saved to be a Jesus fan club. We were not saved just to sing praises and acknowledge Him and to do our religious duty. We were raised up to be what? Salt and light 
to the world around us. Now, the enemy wants us to be spectators and fans. That's what the enemy wants. Because as long as the church is doing that, we're not doing what we're called to do. And so throughout Scripture, what we see is this tension because to handle the presence wrongly means, you know what, there's going to be curses instead of blessings. But if I, and, and if I do that, then I, I may end up like David did, just saying, I don't want the presence of the Lord near me because this brings bad things. What God does is say, look, I'm going to give you the prescription for handling my presence so that I can pour blessings into your life. So how can I become a new covenant Levite, one who has been equipped to carry the presence of God? The people of God would do well to study the Old Testament here because every time, like I said, someone tried to move into a position without being called, equipped, and consecrated for it, it brought disaster to us. And so we have to recognize that Jesus told the woman at the well, God is seeking, he's actively seeking genuine worshipers. Not admirers, not fans, but worshipers. And it occurs to me that there are many people that don't understand the difference. They have never been taught what does it mean to operate in authentic worship. We think that it means that it, it, you know, showing up on time for the music or maybe singing, or maybe admiring God. The first truth is that authentic worshipers move towards God. Authentic worship entails movement towards God. Stop asking God to meet you where you are. That's for lost people, right? God meets lost people. We talked about this at Christmas time with the Magi. They're diviners and they're looking to the heavens and God sends them a star to, lie, to, to guide their way. But by the end of the story, they're being spoken to the same way God speaks to his prophets through dreams. They, they received a dream just as Joseph did and began to walk in the counsel of the Lord. We come to the Lord without any understanding. But once we begin to walk with him, we have to recognize that we have to cease asking him to meet us where we are because God says this, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. He says that to his people, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Now this requires both holiness and obedience. God always leads us towards greater intimacy with him, never away. God will never lead his people to a greater distance from him. But I want you to notice a couple words. In the first passage in 2 Samuel 6, the Bible says that David in his kingly robes with 30,000 people in this huge band, this huge production, are celebrating before the Lord. In the second passage that we read initially, it says that David entered the city with rejoicing. Now there's a difference between celebration and rejoicing. Celebration is external. Rejoicing is internal. The first attempt was all about externals, establishing David's kingship. He really wasn't focused on God's holiness, but his own image. Look, there was something to be desired as a king for having the presence of God giving you favor and blessings before the other nations. If you go back earlier in 1 Samuel and you read the story of how the Philistines captured the ark, the Israelites bring the ark of God into their camp thinking... Well, God is going to bless us regardless of everything else that's wrong. 
regardless of all the sin that's in, in the camp. And the Philistines, the Bible says, trembled. And they said, we're doomed. A great God has come into the camp of the Israelites. So David wants to send a message, not only to his people, but to the peoples around him. God is on our side. And so he's got, that's a big, I mean, 30,000 people would be a long parade. And so David is bringing the ark in. He's celebrating. He's got his kingly robes. There's no doubt he's out front. There's no doubt the king is there. The ark is there. The musicians are playing. It's a grand thing. They hit a pothole. We don't know anything about those around here. They hit a pothole. And one of them whose name is Strength reaches out to write the presence of God. Now, like I said earlier, God's presence writes us. We don't write him. Rich Mullins had a line when he, in, a, in his song Creed, speaking of the truth of the word of God, I did not make it, it is making me. And that's the attitude and the mindset that we must have as we approach the Lord. God is not pleased with external celebration that is designed primarily to please the flesh. If you're not becoming more like Jesus through worship, it's not worship. It may be singing, it may be admiration, but it's not worship. Worship is God-focused. It moves us towards Him. John the Baptist said, He must increase, I must decrease. True worship asks God, Lord, is there anything in my life that is hindering your spirit working through me? Lord, is there anything in my home, anything in my language, anything even in my thoughts? The Bible says we take every thought captive. Is there anything about me, Lord, that is getting in the way of you revealing your presence through me? And it yields that to God. That's what, that's what true worshipers do. They move towards God. We're going to talk about the, the veil being torn because God opened the path to come into the Holy of Holies. But if we are not becoming more like Jesus through our worship, we need to step back and analyze, what am I doing then? Because it's not worship. It may be a number of other things. But worship is transformational. Every time I worship, if you're focused, well, I'm not, I'm not that good a singer, or I don't like this song, who's the focus on? It doesn't say, God, you know what, you made me, you didn't make me a great singer, but I'm going to praise you anyway. You know, I, I've run praise teams, and I've, I've, I've talked to people about their singing, and, and sometimes people just kind of get lost in worship and whatnot. And, and I've said, you know, I've never once, in more than 20 years of pastoring, ever criticized anybody in the pews or in the chairs for the way they sing. But when we come up here, we come up to serve. We come up to serve. So if your focus is on you, and your focus is on your worship, Jesus went up on the mountainside to pray. Jesus fasted. But when he came down to minister, the Bible says he looked out on the fields. His heart wept for Jerusalem. He looked at people. And so when we come into worship, we look to God to become more like Jesus so that we can be transformational out there. If it's all about me and my life and my wants and my preferences, it's not worship. It's not worship. Authentic worship also necessitates the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he, David, sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Now, what is this saying? The first time, there was no sacrifice. The second time, I imagine these Levites, 
They had seen Jesus struck down before them. They grab the poles, they stick it through the rings, and they're about, you know, 12 inches from the ark of the Lord. They're nervous. The last guy who tried to carry this thing was struck down. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, sacrifice, right? I mean, <laughs> right? Put it down to sacrifice of the Lord. They only took six steps. This was miles away, guys. They took six steps and they sacrificed to the Lord. We need to get back this mindset in our generation. God calls us to fear Him not for His sake but for ours. Because without the fear of the Lord, the Bible says, the fear of the Lord begins is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. There needs to be a sense of urgency. Look, I can already hear somebody, but pastor, doesn't the Bible say perfect love casts out fear? Yep. <clears throat> and the same guy who wrote that wrote this, not that I have already been made perfect. There will one day, the perfect will come. One day I will stand perfected in His presence. But here's what I understand. That right now, I know that God will sometimes use persecution to shape the church. There will be no persecution in heaven. But God will use it right now. God will use financial loss to shape you. You won't experience that in heaven. God will use the death of a loved one to shape you. He won't use that in heaven. These things will one day be cast out and have no place in the coming kingdom but they're necessary here and now. And so is fear rightly directed. Jesus said it himself. Do not fear man who can kill only the body and then can do nothing else. But I tell you whom you should fear. Kill the one or fear the, fear the one who can kill both body and soul and throw them into hell. The fact that we, we shrink back from words like that proves my point. The fact that we listen to the words of Jesus and think they don't sound like Jesus proves how much we still have left to be done in us to become like Jesus. I, I, I look at the difference in the outfits of David when he first comes up, tries to bring the ark up. He's wearing his kingly robes. The second time, he's wearing a linen ephod. Now what a lin, uh, that was, was basically it was like a onesie that the priests wore under their robes so that they didn't sweat through and contaminate their robes. And so David is wearing this linen ephod. He throws off his kingly robes. And the Bible says that as he comes into Jerusalem, there is Michal. Interestingly, it doesn't say David's wife. It says daughter of Saul. It calls her daughter of Saul. And it says that when she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. See, David is he's clothing himself in order to cultivate reverence. C.S. Lewis speaks of kneeling in prayer as being preparative for receiving in prayer. And it's true. I like to oftentimes walk around when I'm praying, but I will almost always, if not always, begin kneeling before the Lord to remind myself and to bring the flesh into submission that I am bowing before my King. Jesus does call us friend, but the reason that's an honor is his position. It is because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. It is because he is the judge. We get it exactly backwards. God, Jesus told us not to fear man, but to fear the Lord. And the world, the world has this approach to dealing with sin. And look, I want to be a part of solutions in our generation. But don't ask me to bear the weight of guilt that God freed me from if you won't walk in the fear of the Lord yourself. 
You're telling me that I have to do this stuff to be a better citizen, but you're not willing to walk in the fear of the Lord. It's going to lead to disaster. Tony Evans, who's a great preacher, but he, many of you don't know, he was for years the, the chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys. Some of you may watch the football games later today. When you watch, there's not two teams on the field. There's three. There's three. Imagine what would happen if the referees didn't show up. Imagine what would happen if you had two teams with no reverence for the rules of the game. That's our society. We have created a society that has no reverence for the Word of God, that has no fear of the Lord, and we remove the church from the playing field, and we wonder, why do we see all these terrible things going on around us? Why do we see these things happening? Worship acknowledges the sovereignty of God over all the affairs of men. It's amazing when a war starts. The president, I don't care who the president, we need to pray. After 9-11, we need to pray. You know what? You need to pray every day. Paul tells us, be in prayer for those in positions of authority, secular government. And I think, Paul, do you know who you were talking about? Of course he did. The man who, 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 who was in charge of Rome at that time was a lunatic named Nero who would eventually execute Paul. That wasn't Paul's concern. Paul said, I'm on the field for a purpose. If the fans come out of the stadium and take my head because they don't like a call, that's on them. But I'm going to do what I'm called to do while I'm on this field. And that is what the church has failed to do in this generation. We've stepped back. We've ceased to pray. We've ceased to be salt and light. We're seeing all these things happening. And now we're watching the godless tell us how to be godly. It's insanity. And if you imagine a Super Bowl without referees and without reverence for the rules of the game... You have chaos. You have disorder. Authentic worshipers also welcome and invite sacrifice. They welcome and invite sacrifice. They're expected to endure rejection. If you look uh, at verse 20, if your Bibles are still open, the Bible says, when David returned home to bless his household. So he's, he's blessed the people of God. Now he comes and he wants to bless his household. My cow... Again, daughter of Saul, not wife of David, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of slave girls as, of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael in one of the great disses of the Bible, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than anyone from your father's house when he appointed me ruler over his people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. And then he says this, I will become even more undignified than this. In other words, you think that was bad. Wait till next week, hon. <laughs> and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. If I don't care what I look like to me when I worship, I don't care what I look like to you when I worship, I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I'll be held in honor. In other words, those uneducated, poor slave girls, even they get it, hon. You don't, but they get it. But then it says this. And my cow daughter of Saul, again, <laughs> it's almost like hammering this home. We know who she is by now, but what? God doesn't stutter. He's, he's teaching us something. My cow daughter of Saul had no children to the day of her death. 
Understand the text doesn't say, as is the normal, usual Old Testament custom, God closed her womb. It doesn't say that. It says she had no children. Church, worship is an analog of intimacy. Just as you cannot reproduce flesh without fleshly intimacy, you cannot reproduce spiritual, spiritually without spiritual intimacy. Let me say that again. Just as you cannot reproduce flesh, like Jesus said in John 3, flesh gives birth to flesh. You cannot reproduce without physical intimacy. You cannot reproduce spiritually without spiritual intimacy. It's why Jesus said that we cannot be disciples, his disciples, unless we are willing to hate even that which is most precious to us. Now, understand, Jesus is not saying that you need to just generate a hatred towards your mama in order to be his follower. It's not what he's talking about. But in the New Testament, love and hate are verbs. They're verbs. They're not feelings. I don't think Jesus was hanging on the cross going, I just feel so groovy, like this just hippie kind of love, right? That's not what Jesus was feeling on the cross. But Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that he what? Lay down his life. It's activity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love is an activity. Hate is an activity. And Jesus said, if you're not willing to reject even that which is closest to you, your closest relationships, even up to and including your very life, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot follow after me. And so we think of marriage as the Bible teaches it. You go through the Old Testament and you see the, and, and, and unbelievers will try to do things like this. Yeah, but we see people with eight wives. Yeah, and Jesus also said that because of your hardness of heart, God permitted divorce. But he goes back to Genesis. He goes back to the beginning. He goes back to creation and says, but this isn't the way it was supposed to be. I think of David, his, his second wife, Abigail. Abigail was a woman who did him a kindness. She was married to a wealthy man whose name was Fool. How would you like that name, right? <laughs> so, so she's married to a man whose name is Fool, and he acts like it. And David is basically serving as a police force for all of his flocks and herds, from bandits and thieves and robbers, for weeks or months at a time. And so a holiday comes, and David sends some of his men, and he goes to them, and they say, hey, look, we've been watching over your herd. And this was common, that wealthy, powerful landowners and people with a lot of servants would sort of act like the protectors for the rest of the community. That's why it was so shocking in the story of the prodigal son, when he demands his share, he actually reduces the amount of wealth in the community so he can go live the way he wants to. That's why, that's why the father runs to him and puts the robe on him and the ring on his finger, because the people wanted to tar and feather him. And so David asked for just a simple, hey, can we have some food for, a, for a, a holiday offering? And the guy, get lost. I don't know who you are. And then he says, many people are breaking away from their masters this day. Well, apparently then you do know who he is. And so David gets so infuriated, he said, that's it. Not a male's going to be left to this guy by nightfall. And he rides out. So Abigail shows up. She brings this great offering and she says, hey, let not my Lord be angry with my household my husband's name is Fool. So, so cut us some slack, right? That should have told you something when he introduced himself as, Hi, I'm Fool, right? That, that might have been an indicator. And, and then what happens is David goes away and the Lord strikes this man down and he dies. Now, under the law at that time, she may not have inherited, go back to the book of Ruth and you see, she may not have inherited anything. Many women at that time were reduced to begging, charity from family members, 
many even prostitution. And so David generously says, I'm going to take... Now, interestingly, we don't have a lot of record of Abigail in the story after that point. We see her name once or twice. David may very well have told her, you know what, go and live on your estate and run it, and, you know, it, it's, it's fine. But he marries her in order to protect her from the things she might deal with. But Jesus, when teaching on marriage, said this, For this reason, a man, singular shall marry a woman, singular. He'll leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. That was the prescription. Now, with that definition, understand that this is why God calls people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament who mess around with idolatry, adulterous people. They're adulterous people. They declare an exclusive relationship with God but continue to bow before the idols of the world. Wealth, success, comfort. And God says you are being adulterous. Until sacrifice and surrender become a habitual part of our worship, we will not see spiritual reproduction. I have people that will come up to me and they'll say, Pastor, are we going to have a revival? Are we gonna? And they really think that spiritual reproduction takes place by who we put in the pulpit. When you go back to Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve. And he says what? Be fruitful and multiply. And in Matthew 28, when Jesus is speaking, he's not speaking to pastors. He's not speaking to apostles. He's speaking to all of his followers. And he says, go ye therefore and make or produce, which is the same word, you know, in the grocery store. It's called the produce aisle. It's the same idea. Produce disciples. Now, Jesus had already taught, like I said in John 3, that flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. If we're not walking in intimacy with the spirit, we will not produce the things of the spirit. Now, here's a very simple way to understand that. The fruit of the spirit, the fruit of being connected to the vine, is Christ-likeness. Because the Bible tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the inward things that should be happening in us if we're really walking in step with the Spirit. And that we will also, Jesus said, you will produce much fruit, meaning other disciples. So if we're walking with the Spirit, we're going to see Christ produced in us and we're going to see Christ produced through us to others. And when we don't see that, when we see all the consternation, when we see all the problems in our world, and we see the, then what we need to recognize is we need to get back to the basics of worship. Just as Adam and Eve's great commission was to go forth and multiply physically, so the great commission of the church is to do so spiritually. I mentioned earlier the veil being torn in two, and this is interesting because the Bible says it was torn from top to bottom. Bottom to top, man could have done it. Top to bottom, only God could do it. But here's the thing. The ark wasn't in the Holy of Holies at that point. The ark, wasn't, the, the ark was brought into Jerusalem by David. It was placed in the Holy of Holies by his son Solomon. But in the, Babylonian, the time of the Babylonian exile, we hear nothing about the ark from that point on. As a matter of fact, that's why it's called the lost ark. We, re, we still refer to it that, in that way. So it's interesting because when the temple or when the veil was torn in the temple from top to bottom, it revealed something because those priests still on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, 
they would tie a rope around their waists because only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. So he would tie a rope around his waist, probably be 30 or 40 feet long. It would hang outside the, into what was called the holy place. And he would also have bells around, his, uh, around his, uh, the edge of his garment. If there was no noise from there, nobody could go in and get him because we saw what happened to Yuza. So they'd have to pull him out. But here's the thing. He was going into an empty holy of holies for centuries. When that temple was rebuilt, there was no ark placed in the holy of holies. It had disappeared from history. Now by the power of the finished work of Christ on the cross, the veil was torn. Jesus took his seat at the right hand. The veil is torn, showing us that it's not about coming into the presence of a thing anymore. Now we are invited to come into the very presence of the Lord. Now there is no reason the book of Hebrews tells us to worship at man-made temples, but we need to remember this. Jesus tore the veil exposing both the heart of God and the futility of man, but he never tore the word. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. And the law was the Bible as they had it. There was no New Testament. Until everything is accomplished. The pattern and the truths of the word are not going away. And over and over, God shows us his presence is not anything to just be cheered for. It's not anything that we can play games with. The presence of God is powerful and necessary for our world. You want blessings on your marriage? You need the, pres the, the blessings and the presence of God. You want blessings on your society? You need the presence of God. Blessed, the Bible says, is the nation whose God is the Lord. You want blessings on your household? You want to see miracles happen? You want to see your children return to God? You need His presence. I'm all for programs. I'm all for technology. I mentioned on Facebook this week we're called fishers of men and you can't clean a fish till you get it on the boat so whatever gets them in the door is fine. But we're not catch and release. If the world isn't being transformed by the church then all we're doing is what David did in celebrating himself and look at how many fish we've caught. That's not what we're called to do. Jesus didn't say go ye therefore and fill up churches. He said, go and make disciples. And you can't make what you won't be. Hello. You can't make a disciple. Your kids will never become disciples. Your friends will never become disciples if you won't be one. And in order to be one, we need the presence of the Lord. We need a dangerous thing. We need a powerful thing. We need something that can crush us. We need something that can destroy us. In His mercy, God gave us the prescription. If you do it this way, that's not going to happen. If you handle it properly, there's nothing that you need to worry about. But that doesn't mean you don't reverence me. See, I'm sure that first Levite who took that pole in his hand and thrust it through the handles on the sides of the ark, having seen the grave of Yuzah, and possibly even seen the death of Yuzah, probably thought he was a dead man too. Last guy that got this close to the ark got struck down in a, in a pretty spectacular fashion. It scared David enough that he didn't want the ark to come near him. So I'm sure as he put that pole in the rings on the side of the ark, he probably thought he was a dead man. And that's a great picture of us as the church. We are to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to righteousness in Christ Jesus.
My life verse is Galatians 2.20. Some people, they love Jesus wept because it's easy to memorize. Galatians 2.20 is a little bit longer. I've been crucified with Christ and therefore it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's one verse. It's long. It's one verse. Church, God has the power to write us. We don't have the ability to write him. And I think of those characteristics of a worshiper and I want us to kind of meditate on them as we spend a few moments in worship. And hopefully it's authentic worship. Take some time. If you're hungry for authentic blessings, genuine blessings, the presence of the Lord, the favor, not just stuff I want to see happen in my life, not just for an experience with God that I can say, wasn't that great? You go on vacation? Boy, that was an awesome. I went to Disneyland. That was awesome. I went to the mountains. That was awesome. You had an experience. God wants us to carry His presence everywhere we go because His presence is transformational. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, transforming us. Us transforming the world. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the very ends of the earth. We talked about, had a video the other week from John Langer. God may send somebody in this place halfway across the world to bring the gospel to him. If he doesn't, it doesn't mean he didn't raise you up right where you are to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to this part of the earth. So can we stand together and can we take a few moments in worship and can we ask ourselves that honest question God is there anything in my life Father God is there anything about me that is getting in the way of you using me as a vessel to bring your presence to those around me Men, rise up, lead your homes. Teach your children. Be the first one out the door. Be the one who has your hands raised in worship. We need, we need as a generation to get back to the reverence, the humility, the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom, that is the beginning of knowledge. We need to get back to the place that our brothers and sisters in previous generations understood that worship wasn't about entertainment for us. It was about glory for Him. And worship means laying down anything. I mentioned when I first got here, the Old Testament word for altar is mizbiak. means the place of slaughter, the place of sacrifice. Anything that God would have, He can take. Father God, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you touch hearts right now, that even as we spend a few moments praising you, Lord, let it, let it develop into authentic worship. All across this house, Lord, if there is anything that we're clinging to, anything that we're holding to, anything that we're reserving for ourselves, anything we've, we've not allowed you to correct about ourselves, I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that your spirit would speak now. Father, it's for our good. It's for our good that you correct. It's for our good that you shape us. It's for our good that you write our behavior. And Lord, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would make everyone in this place, everyone watching online, a vessel through which you can bless their marriages, bless their homes, bless their neighborhoods, bless this community. Father, we'll give you, as we see that happening, all the glory, for you will be making us into the kind of worshipers that Jesus said 
the Father seeks. We ask it in his name.